welcome back to another episode of Paranormal The New Normal. I'm your host as always, Jeremy, here trying to make the world a little more normal. And like I said in my last show, we might actually achieve that a little bit today, so we'll see how it goes. But of course, I always have a guest to help me with this. And my guest today is Tim Kelly, author of Hidden History of Humanity and founder of Polytype Publishing, which if you listen to the last episode, two history episodes in a row. How awesome is that? We don't get to talk to that many people about history, and it's sad because, as you all know, I'm a huge lover of history, especially the topics we're going to be hitting on tonight. But first things first, Tim, how you doing? I'm doing quite well. How about yourself? Can't complain. Can't complain. Two shows in one night. I'm a happy man. <laughs> but my first question on the show always is what got you into the paranormal spiritual mythological world okay well there's a little bit of a long story there which i'll try to keep short but when i was a young kid i was actually very open-minded and was very open to the paranormal i had actually done a little bit of research on the side then during my teens, I became a little bit more in the hardcore science side and was not sure I would ever go back to entertaining all the notions I did when I was in grade school. But then life itself kind of forced me back to the paranormal with a bunch of different experiences that I had. And eventually I found when I was researching ancient history, there was a great deal of the paranormal to be explored. And I always had a fascination with ancient Egypt, anything that could be related to Atlantis and there were not that many books that were of high quality back when I was growing up, but later in the 90s, there was a bit more of an explosion of books that were going into the ancient past. And after reading through those, I was hoping that someone could go a lot further than anyone else had gone. And when I saw that that was not gonna happen, I started digging myself. And eventually I ended up in quite an extraordinary place, which we'll probably talk about tonight. Interesting. Similar kind of to my own path into the paranormal world, but I was always more interested. I mean, I loved I love ancient history. I love the mythology behind it all. I love all of it. But the idea that those some of those mythological creatures could still be existing in these day and age are what really keeps me interested in, which inspired this podcast to happen. So, but so my second question is: and have you ever had any type of experience with? anything in the paranormal world, whether it be spirits or UFOs or anything along those lines? Yes, I have. Ooh, interesting. Please do tell. <laughs> okay. Well, I actually had a number of paranormal experiences when I was a kid. Um, at first, I was kind of reluctant to believe that they were actual paranormal experiences. I know that I had been, as I mentioned, very open to the paranormal. So I remember in grade school, we used to have these uh, catalogs of books that would be available to us that we could order from Scholastic Books, as it was called. And they often gave us the option to purchase books that talked about the work of Professor J.B. Ryan and his work in the paranormal. So I had a lot of vocabulary for the paranormal from all the reading that I was doing. And so I started having a few experiences that were really strange. So one of the strangest experiences I had was one night I've had dreams that were very vivid. And I know that dreams in and of themselves are not necessarily paranormal, but I dreamt obviously more intensely than other kids did. 
I would have about eight dreams a night. They were full color. Sometimes some of them had very elaborate plots. But one night I had a dream. And in that dream, there were three very distinct events that took place in the course of the dream, totally unrelated to each other. Uh, I can only remember, well, let's see, I think one of the three, no, two of the three uh, that happened in the dream. In one of those dreams, my next door neighbor had uh, a youngest kid who I dreamt locked himself in his own bathroom, which is a strange thing to dream. It was just seemed to be completely out of the blue. And in that same night, I also had a dream about a kid at school poking people with a needle, which was also something that is not a normal part of a school day. Yeah. When I got up that morning, I went to the bus stop and I just so happened to see the same kid. And I looked at him and I, I kind of laughed and I said, oh, you know, I had a dream about you last night that you were locked in your bathroom. And he gave me kind of a startled look. And he said, that's strange because I was locked in my bathroom just a few hours ago. And I said, really? That, that was odd. And I just thought, okay, well, I guess that's just another weird coincidence. But that day at school, we were coming down from lunch from the playground, and there was a kid who had a little needle, and he was going around poking the other kids. And so I thought, wow, I just apparently had a precognitive dream because all three events that I had seen in the dream happened the very next day. And then I had a bunch of lucid dreams, and things were kind of quiet, I guess, on the paranormal front. I, I had a few things which you could argue were telepathy, but you could argue that it was just a coincidence. I remember one time someone was talking about a celebrity and he thought he was going to, you know, fool all of us by asking how old the person was. So he said, guess how old this person was? And he was thinking we were all going to say a, a pretty youthful age. And I looked at him and the number 40 popped in my head and I said, 40. And then he just looked at me, startled, like, how did you know that? And I said, I don't know, the number just popped in my head. And I thought, okay, so that was another strange thing because it happened to be how old the celebrity was. But when I was in college, I had a friend of mine who introduced me to Illusions by Richard Bach. And she was asking me uh, if I had ever had an out-of-body experience. And you know, I, I was very dismissive of that. I said, oh no, no, that's never happened to me before. And she would always give me this kind of enigmatic smile like, oh, well, you're probably going to have one someday. And I was just thinking, okay, well, if you believe that, that's fine. It's never happened to me before. And actually, several years later, I started having out-of-body experiences. And when I started having those, I actually did have attempts to try and control what was happening to me. And I have had visions of going back in time. Uh, I tried to go back to Atlantis a few times and saw a few different things when I did that. And so I have had a few out-of-body experiences and paranormal experiences with going out-of-body. Would you say that you were astral projecting even or? Yes, I, I, I would say that. I mean, that's, there are debates on vocabulary, but yes, uh, this falls into the category of astral projection for sure. Interesting. Interesting. And that's what sparked your interest in the ancient world? No, no, no. That was, I already had an interest in the ancient world ever since I was a little kid. I was researching ancient Egypt when I was in first grade. This uh, stuff true, true. just kind of like on the side. But what was interesting was that after all the different fields that I had studied, by the time I got ready to write Hidden History of Humanity, boy, was I prepared to write a very strange story because of all the strange elements of my own background. Yeah, which, um, 
which your book, Hidden History of Humanity. So what, like generally, what is it, what is the topics discussed in it? Okay, so I think I structured the book pretty darn well. I started off with a tour of the solar system and make the case that many elements of our solar system show signs of unnatural interference. And then after making that case, I get into a story of the origins of life. And since I've developed a third theory on the origins of species, which is available for free at my website, I had a few things to say on that topic. And after I go through that, I go through the origins of humanity itself and make the case that humanity actually began in Atlantis, uh, as opposed to some other theories that are out there. And I build that case and, and show how that all occurred. And then the story goes from a very heavy emphasis on Atlantis and eventually gets through to more classical civil civilizations that people would be familiar with, like Sumer, Egypt, Greece, Rome, and all the rest. But a lot of things are done by using that concept of an Atlantean legacy, filtering all the way from ancient Atlantis up to the present day. I feel that Atlantis has been expurgated from our history and that this was done very much on purpose because if we knew more of what the Atlanteans knew, we would be in much better shape today. So I try to resurrect as much of that knowledge as possible. And there actually is a ton which cross-references extremely well. Which is, it's interesting. I actually just released an episode at the end of December uh, with another author who he an author slash explorer, I guess be the best word, because he, and he actually believes that he discovered where Atlantis originally was, which I can never, never, I can never remember the name of the country. He says it's now in modern days, but he's, he basically believes it was in the middle of what is now a desert and that that was the central, like capital city of Atlantis, that they, they probably had a lot of provinces and states, wherever you want to call them throughout the ancient world at that time, but that they, we're based in this central city uh, of what now is a desert country. So, right. And I'm guessing that that's probably a reference to Mauritania and the Atlantean city that was found in Northwest Africa. That's probably, I'm guessing that's the one that he's referring Mauritania, to. Mauritania. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. He, him and his partners are the one who did that discovery. They've been over there multiple times and they found basically buried Landmarks, I would. I don't know, or, what's the word I'm thinking of? It, just places that look like they were built in ancient times, um, plazas and whatnot, and like they they can't track any other civilization to really living in that area in recorded history. So, right, I, I'm familiar with that research. I would uh, strongly make the case, and I do make the case in my book that although I agree that the city that was found in Northwest Africa is an Atlantean city. I would argue that it is not the capital of Atlantis at all. Uh, it is just one of many cities. There are tons of other Atlantean colony cities. I could talk for quite a while on that subject, but the Atlantean refugees colonized most of the Mediterranean basin, and they did so in a wide variety of places. Ancient Carthage, there is a Atlantean colony that was set up in Spain uh, that is known in the ancient literature as Tartessos. Uh, there are a number of other Atlantean colonies that went further into the Atlantean basin. And there was a major colony, believe it or not, in the North Sea. This is actually recorded by the ancient historians. Uh, Diodorus has become one, become one of my favorite ancient historians. 
he mentioned a colony called Basilea. That colony is of extreme importance to the flow of history, mainly because it was active at a very strange time period. While there is some debate on the Atlantean timeline, I do agree with Casey because I think that his uh, timeline does hold up at a, of the final sinking of the Atlantean continent that was in the Atlantic Ocean at about 10,000 BC. Basilea is a very late colony. Uh, it makes its sinking beneath the sea at approximately 2193 BC. So that is a very late in the game Atlantean colony that was still going. But again, there's there's an awful lot to talk about in relation to the Atlantean timeline, but uh, there is definitely more than one Atlantean colony. Yeah, it was a, yeah, from what he believed it, that they were a basically a race that was ahead of the game for thousands of years ahead in the way they ran their government, the way they ran their society. Like they just, that's where he said, that's where they're advanced. It wasn't like all the science fiction writers will tell us that it was their technology that was advanced beyond like to what we have today even, but it was just their government that was advanced and that they did things way ahead of what the way every other country did things eventually. Well, I've dug so deep on this that I feel fairly confident in making the statements that I do that I can state rather firmly that my belief is the Atlantean civilization that began approximately at 210,000 BC, this would again be backing up what Casey was saying, was not a terrestrial civilization. I do believe that there's enough evidence that we can now state the Atlantean civilization was founded by Pleiadians. And I would also argue that there were other uh, civilizations on the planet that were non-terrestrial. This includes a group that colonized uh, Lemuria, which was a continent that used to exist in the Indian Ocean. And another continent is sometimes referred to as Mu that was in the Pacific Ocean. And that there was uh, an alien civilization. I call them the Cyanians. They had elongated heads and they had blue-green skin. Um, I know this part's really going to sound strange, but again, I'm very open to answering any questions along about some of this strange material. Uh, I also believe that these aliens were what are called simultaneous hermaphrodites that are capable of parthenogenesis. Now, in scientific terms, what that means is they had male and female characteristics and were capable of self-fertilization or virgin births. And that there was a, a third group, a reptilian group, that had an initial infusion prior to about 50,000 BC. And then they had a secondary infusion uh, clearly involved in the creation of the civilization in Sumer. But I also think that there's a strong case to be made that they arrived on a moon space station. I know I'm really putting myself out there for a lot of criticism <laughs> by making the statement that the moon is a space station, but all of my research does back up the idea that what we call our moon is not at all a natural construct. It is actually an artificial space station. I think it may have arrived at about 11,000 BC. And there is, again, quite a bit of evidence to back that up, which I reference in the book. But I know I just said a lot, so I'm just going to pause for a sec. You did. You did. But I, I mean, see, I've done an episode of my other paranormal show, and I actually mentioned it on this one as well, that... I am a big fan of, well, one, that the moon is some kind of death star, for lack of a better word, because 
I mean, the the fact that they shot a missile at it and it rang, which typically means something's hollow. Exactly. And just, I mean, it would make sense. I, I mean, I have a theory that I've talked about on the show a lot of times where it's the basically the bottom line is Earth is a prison planet built by aliens, or not if not built by aliens, taken over by aliens to use as a prison planet. So, I mean, there's a lot of levels to that theory I have, but a lot, it's just, I don't know. It's, there's a lot of false history we've been told. I know that's a fact. Right. Well, in relation to the moon specifically, I would say that, first of all, you are correct. They tested it. It was hollow. It rings like a bell. It has also shown signs of having an electrogravitic surface, which to people who are familiar with suppressed aspects of physics, that means that it might be able to propel itself using electrogravitics. You should also consider the fact that the moon has what are called tektites on it. Tektites are an unusual rocky geological formation. It's basically rock turned to glass. And that means one of two things. It means either that the moon has volcanism in it, or it has been subjected to possibly nuclear level impacts. And given how hostile the beings are on the moon, it really would not surprise me if someone hated the people on the moon that much that they detonated nuclear bombs on it at some point in time. The other strange thing that people might wanna think a little bit about is what do you really think the odds are that the moon would be at the precise distance from the earth that it could perfectly block out the sun in an eclipse do you really think that that was a coincidence i never actually have thought about it but that does seem a little strange almost too strange but it i mean i never actually thought i never actually thought about that i'm amazed i never i never came up a conversation with somebody else before like but yeah that makes sense i mean and and that's the other thing because like people talk like i have a one of my co-hosts my other show is uh Big believer that we never went to the moon, that the moon landing's fake. But I can't go that way because I think it's real. And in the press conference after where they get back, the look on their faces is a look of, we saw something, but we can't talk about it because the government threatened us if we talk about it. So we're going to sit here nervously and answer these questions that don't really matter compared to what we know. Well, okay, on that very subject, uh, since we're flowing along those lines, I will say that uh, there was a video that was released a few months ago. Um, this was from the son of a man who was involved with NASA, and he was sworn to secrecy, and his son was sworn to secrecy, and the only reason why he relinquished his secrecy was because he was about to die, and so he thought he had nothing to lose, but... According to him, there was a studio that was set up in Ohio at a military base, and they brought in dump trucks worth of props and enough rock to make it look like it was moon, and they shot something in a studio that then went on television, and it deeply saddened the father when he saw it on TV that the stuff that they had filmed in the studio didn't get shown to the world as if it was an actual moon landing. Um, so I don't remember that individual's name, but that video was released, I think, within the last year or two. I don't know if people can still find it on beforeitsnews.com, but there is such a footage uh, that was released, uh, although I did think that the internet got scrubbed of that like shortly after it went up, so I don't even know if people could still find it if it's out there. Um, 
the other thing that I will mention on this subject is when you read through a book like Suppressed Inventions and Other Discoveries by Jonathan Eisen, last name E-I-S-E-N, very fantastic book. I strongly recommend it to everybody. But one of the ideas that emerges uh, from that book that has been reinforced by any number of uh, fringe researchers is that we basically have two space programs. Um, we have NASA, which is what the insiders refer to as a dog and pony show for the public to give them mm -hmm. something to look at and give them something to believe is the real space program. And then there's a much more intense space program that has been going on for much longer and no one really wants to talk about that. If you go through suppressed inventions and other discoveries, I, I just mentioned electrogravitics not that long ago, but there's a, a very famous researcher, well, <laughs> famous to the suppressed community, at least, not necessarily to mainstream history and science, but his name is T.T. Brown, and he pioneered electrogravitics, and he showed that it was possible with a strong enough electromagnetic field to basically create anti-gravity. This is not really speculative at all. We actually have uh, fighter craft in the U.S. military that routinely use electrogravitics, so they're fully aware that this is totally valid. Um, the public is just told some things and not told other things. But who knows how far that technology has gone in terms of enabling space travel. And of course, these are not the only forms of space travel, but I'm just responding to your statements in relation to what's oh, going on with the moon. Yeah, I mean, trust me, my show is all for freedom of opinions, freedom of speech. There's, And if you disagree with me, all the better. I like it better when people disagree with me because it gives more of a oomph to things rather than just two people saying we agree the whole time. So, right. Which, so, but yeah. So back to Atlantis a little bit. You did. So you do, you're, you are a believer that there's a, there was ancient aliens that basically started earth in a way. Yes. I was actually thinking that I might mention is a, a thematic concept to help uh, bring people closer to this idea, the idea of the sacred grid, because I think if you focus on the concept of the sacred grid, it really is a fantastic, easy to work with gateway to understanding the paranormal history of our planet. So let's talk about that briefly. So sometimes I use the concept of cymatics to introduce the idea of the grid, just because cymatics is a great thing to talk about regardless. So Hans Jenny pioneered this field. It goes back far back in time, but he formalized it pretty much during the 20th century. So what was discovered a very long time ago is if you take, for example, a bunch of sand and you put it on a glass plate and you vibrate the plate a certain way, symmetric patterns will, will form. These will either be like fourfold symmetry or sixfold symmetry. There are tons of YouTube videos with cymatic imagery on them. I have tons of those links in my paper on confirmation theory, the, th the third theory on the origin of species that I was just mentioning. So now, that we have established that if you have a musical instrument and you project a certain frequency onto sand on a plate, you will get perfect arrangements of geometric shapes. Now expand that idea to the idea of a sun shining on a spherical crystalline planet. And then imagine a grid forming, an etheric grid. Okay, so now that you have that concept in your head for a second, I'm going to switch over to Plato's five famous platonic solids. Uh, these are the tetrahedron, the hexahedron, also known as the cube, octahedron, pentagonal dodecahedron, and the 20-sided icosahedron. If you play role-playing games, then you know those as your dragon dice. Okay, so 
you can take those shapes and you can actually combine all of them into a single shape. Uh, I call that the omnihedron. The tetrahedron fits perfectly inside a cube. The cube can form a dual. Uh, it's a shape made from its shape, uh, the octahedron. The cube can also have eight of its points perfectly touch eight points inside the pentagonal dodecahedron, which in and of itself can spontaneously link to the icosahedron. So all those shapes can be merged into one. So imagine that happening and imagining in, inflating to match the surface of the earth. You would have a grid of lines on the earth if you did that. But at the core of it would mainly be this central idea of the cube. So now imagine a cube inserted into the sphere of the earth. It would touch the earth on eight specific points. Now, some may say, okay, everything you just said is just very abstract of what practical value is it? It is of this practical value. The greatest structure of ancient times is the Great Pyramid in Egypt. It rests exactly on a point where a cube's corner would touch the surface of the earth. Now, if you look at an atlas, and this is something anyone can do to verify what I'm about to say, look at the exact location of where the Great Pyramid in Egypt is in Giza and go exactly 90 degrees west. Because again, it's 360 degrees to go completely around a circle. One fourth of that is 90 degrees. If you go 90 degrees west of the Great Pyramid in Egypt, you will land where I believe the capital of Atlantis truly was. That capital was called Poseidonis. And it is exactly where Edgar Cayce said it was located, which is around the area of Bimini in the Bermuda Triangle. And the theory here was that at these eight points on the planet, each one of them was going to have a ringed city, was going to have a cubicle temple of learning to lead people towards enlightenment, and each was going to have a great pyramid. It is my belief that there was a great pyramid also in Poseidonis, the capital of Atlantis, and that there was also a great pyramid in, in Mu, which is the, the continent that is now sunken in the Pacific Ocean. And that the Cyanians, as I call them, the people with the elongated heads and the blue skin, did have a great pyramid there and they were teaching people things. There's uh, a source, I quote, Frank Joseph, he was, I guess, uh, sort of a legacy to Edgar Casey at his institute. And he stockpiled a lot of the information on at Lemuria and Mu and did talk about a temple of learning where they were going through the same types of degrees that they were probably going through in Atlantis. So what happens with this grid is that the grid can be used for multiple purposes. The most superficial purposes would be communication. And beyond that, you would have power. And beyond that, defense. So let me talk about the communication aspect for a second. So part of the reason why the concept of the sacred grid became so popular in research was because researchers were finding all around the globe sacred sites. And when they connect all the sacred sites together, they all fall on a grid. So I give links to several options because there are debates on the precise shape of the grid, but it is safe to say that most of these sites do fall on a grid of lines. I'm gonna make some reinforcing statements on that in a second. But the Pleiadian group was trying to tune this grid with positive energy. And then there was a negative group, the reptilian group, that was trying to tune this grid with negative energy. 
So we had one group was trying to do positive stuff with the grid. The other group was trying to do negative stuff with the grid. So how do we know this for sure? Okay, again, this is just a, a process of doing some elementary math. So we started with the Great Pyramid as a reference point. So if you use the Great Pyramid again as a reference point, go 120 degrees west of the Great Pyramid, and then go south down the line of longitude, where do you hit? You hit exactly a pyramid called at the place called Tikal in Guatemala. And that was a place of sacrifice. And as Joseph Farrell points out in his book on Grid of the Gods, if you look at the location where many of these sacrifices occurred, you will find a pyramid and you will find that they committed, you know, thousands of sacrifices at, on those grid points as if they were trying to negatively tune the grid. And then there are other locations like Angkor Wat, where it appears you have another sacred site that's on the grid. But as Farrell says, this seems to be more of a location of a Gnostic quest for enlightenment. So mm -hmm. there, there was more positive energy spreading. So there was, has been this battle over the grid uh, for a multitude of reasons. So let me go back to the telecommunication for a second. So there was a scientist right prior to Tesla. His name is uh, Nathan Stubblefield. And what Stubblefield had discovered, he was started off as a Kentucky melon farmer, nothing wrong with that. He just got fascinated with electronics and started working on telephony. And he actually developed etheric telephony. So this was not electromagnetic telephony. He would plug an antenna into the ground the earth itself was his conductor, and he had clearer phone signals than the electromagnetic telephone system using his etheric system. Now, of course, the bad guys shut it down and made, made it seem as if the guy was a lunatic, and we've not heard much from it ever since. However, just a short time later, when Marconi and Tesla used to joke that uh, Marconi is a good fellow, but he's using 17 of my patents, uh, Marconi was trying to develop radio and he ran afoul of the grid. So what do I mean by that? When he was trying to propagate electromagnetic signals, signals, Marconi found if he projected signals one way, his signals got an unexpected boost. If he pro projected them another way, his signals would get unexpectedly snuffed. Now he was running against the etheric grid when he did that. So what we find with these so-called temples and they're different researchers, I have one cited in my book, who argues that a lot of these temples were located where they were located was because they were perfect communication hubs. You could use the etheric grid and you could have one person give a message and it would be received at the proper location because the grid conducted the message to it perfectly. You could also get power there. Again, the Great Pyramid in Egypt like all the other great pyramids, would have been drawing on this power from the earth and harnessing it to provide power, which was then resonantly broadcast across the planet. Uh, the story goes that Tesla is actually a reincarnated Atlantean, and he went to visit Casey, who told him that. So with Tesla's technology, if those who are not familiar, he was trying to create uh, free power for the world and had set up a facility at Wardenclyffe, New York. This was resonant power. And I make the case that the Great Pyramid is what Tesla was trying to do, but a million times better because it had resonant broadcast capabilities. Although Tesla used a copper sphere at the top of his apparatus, the Great Pyramid uses what's called a pyramidion at the top of it. It was the crystal glowing capstone on top of the pyramid. And that was a resonant power generator. 
And then the final aspect of the Great Pyramid was for defense. Now, this is some very deep and intense physics. You can start off by reading Christopher Dunn's work in the Giza Power Plant. And then if you have the intellect for it and want to tackle it, you can track, uh, go through the trilogy by Joseph Farrell, the Giza Death Star trilogy, and he goes into extreme physics of how the Great Pyramid worked, which I can also talk about as, as much as anyone wants to hear it. Um, but basically what the device could do, it could select a target. It could use a glorified form of interferometry and subnuclear annihilation for that target. Um, it could just match that signature and overload it with so much energy it could be destroyed. Now that could be used positively for defense. And I make the case that the reptiles were more frightened of that weapon than they were of any other thing that the Pleiadians had. And that when they set up their civilization in Sumer, it was because that was a staging area. It was a staging area after the Pleiadians left and the Cyanians had basically taken over Egypt, that they wanted that Great Pyramid. They either wanted it shut down or they wanted it taken over for themselves. And that there was a war that is lost to history that was fought. I'm, gonna, I'm placing it at approximately 3400 BC when the reptiles went into Egypt and Parts of that story were encoded into ancient epics, uh, like the Mahabharata and uh, other tales out of India. But basically, after that time period, the reptiles took control of the Giza Plateau and they ruled Egypt from the shadows. So I would make the case that Egyptian history is not truly Egyptian. It was uh, puppet mastered in the shadows by the Sumerians. So again, I know I just said a lot, so I will again pause. <laughs> Well, I mean, it makes, I mean, that would explain them having, if we're not mistaken, the name Sobak as a god that looks like a crocodile. Exactly. Which... Yeah, that, that I cover that specific entity in the story. So uh, after the reptiles won the war, they were thinking, okay, we're going to try to get the whole planet to worship reptiles. And Sobek was the first run at that. But the people of Egypt were kind of thinking, uh, this guy's a little weird. And, and there's there's a lot of uh, associations with Sobek. Um, it's probably a little too crude to mention on the radio. But uh, Sobek was portrayed as a very strange guy who, you know, liked to take women away in private places and do whatever he wanted to do to them. Um, so very strange start. But yes, that is exactly what I'm talking about. The reptilian Sumerians did try to get people to worship a reptile crocodile-headed god called Sobek, and several pharaohs took their name after Sobek when the Egyptian dynasties were first getting started. But, which, I mean, but how does that, how does that theory explain all the other gods that look like different animals? Okay, so... The gods actually didn't look like the other animals. That was a convention that was used. Uh, if you had the characteristic of a falcon, they would give you a falcon head. Uh. If you had characteristic of a dog. So, yeah, they've gone over at least that much. So, in at least, uh, they're sometimes called therianthropes, beast men. Um, but so far as we know, there were not actually people who had those heads in that particular case. Believe me, there's plenty of other strange creatures that were real. But in that particular case, that seems to be more symbolism. Which, I want to get to some of those strange creatures in a minute, but I do have one question before we get there. So, where did humans come from, do you think? Were they brought? Were they created by the different alien species as a slave race or just as an experiment? 
or did they evolve naturally in some way? Okay, so I haven't been able to figure out necessarily the origins of ape hominids like at, you know, 300,000 or beyond that years ago. But where I pick up the story at about 210,000 BC, my understanding is that at that time, there were a variety of ape hominids which have been noticed in the research. These would include those beings that we call Neanderthals, who mysteriously vanish at about the time that the Cro-Magnons uh, surmount them, and the Denisovans. That's another group that's uh, popped up in different areas. The Denisovans are kind of interesting to me because sometimes when people ask me about uh, human races in relation to Atlantis, I was uh, trying to go into the subtlety of details on the different kinds of human beings that there are. And one of the interesting things that came up was looking at the global distribution of Denisovans. Almost all of them were concentrated in China and Asia. So it really makes me think that when humans were modified or upgraded from these ape hominids to human beings, which I would argue did take place in Atlantis, the Asian groups maybe looked a little bit different because they might have been upgraded Denisovans as opposed to upgraded Neanderthals. But I do make the case that in Atlantis, uh, the primary races that we would think of, uh, these would be black, brown, yellow, and white, were modified in labs by women that were known as Earth Mothers. Um, this is sort of a reversal of the phrase that you usually hear in mythology, Mother Earth, uh, when yeah. they make a reference to Gaia. But what I came across are references instead to Earth Mothers. And it sounds like these were either women who worked in laboratories to upgrade the ape hominids to humans, or perhaps were surrogates after they had been you know, artificially inseminated in some way. But yes, it appears as if all the Homo sapiens that we would identify as such, um, black, brown, yellow, and white, were created in Atlantis. And I do have uh, a lot of references in my book showing you where I got that information. Yeah, it's, eh, I, I mean, I can, I can see that. I could like, really, I really can't see that. I mean, I was always the biggest evolution, like, supporter but i can lately i lately in the last decade or so i've been leaning more towards uh extraterrestrial births kind of in a way mm -hmm. but but let's get into those some of those uh strange creatures that they believed in in these different ancient civilizations which because i mean we were talking about different types of homo different types of um homos back then basically mm -hmm. different homo species what do you think about the idea that there was one called Gigantopithecus that people now believe is what we know as Bigfoot? So I'm hearing a lot of different stories on that. I know that, um, again, I'm not, I'm, I wouldn't call myself an expert on that particular field. I know there's a, a gentleman who's come forward and, and claims that he's part of the military and that he's interacted with one of these people and he's, told a story that does cross-reference with a few other people that this group is an extraterrestrial species um, that is associated with, I don't know, perhaps prior catastrophes in our solar system and that they arrived here and that they're just kind of like refugees who are stuck on our planet. 
for now. Uh, according to his testimony, he says that the Earth has been a battleground between Pleiadians and reptiles, which I thought, oh, what a coincidence. I found the same thing. But in any case, uh, what he says is that that group, uh, the Bigfoot group, does not trust either side and uh, wants to be free of all of them. Uh, I, whether or not his story is true, I don't know. Uh, it, this is almost humorous to me, and I'm, I'm mentioning it more for humor than anything else, because when he said this, I just, you know, my eyes got really big and just said, okay, I'm not so sure I believe everything this guy is telling me. But he said something along the lines of David Bowie is now in charge of Mars at the end of his uh, his presentation. And I thought that was just a little too peculiar for me. <laughs> but in any case, um, I don't know for certain what happened uh, with these uh, Bigfoot, but I do know that there are a number of sources who do connect them to, at the very least, UFOs and uh, flying ships and that they Whatever their mission is, I'm not quite sure what it is, but I think that there probably is such a species, and it is probably segregated in an underground that is is hard to reach. Uh, but I I'm not really an expert on the Bigfoot. Yeah, well, I mean the fact that you mentioned the underground, which I am a big I'm a big proponent of the uh, that the cave systems in the East and West Coast, especially in the United States and all over the world, but mainly those two cave systems. That run from north to south the whole country basically mm-hmm. that those i believe i'm a big believer that that's where bigfoot travel in so they're not that's why they're not seen all the time mm-hmm. you only see them when they come out looking for food or something mm-hmm. and I, I, it's also my theory for dogmen and some other cryptids as well basically mm-hmm. so because it makes sense it does that they would have a place they could travel in and hide and i've heard reports from paranormal investigators of dogmen and even dragons which that threw me for a loop but dragons like being sighted by pennsylvania mines which mm-hmm. those mines i've talked to people who live in pennsylvania years ago and their husbands or grandfathers were miners and like you could get lost in those mines they said people disappeared all the time never coming out of the mines after they went in so yes yeah, definitely Definitely. There's a, a lot of different stories. I know uh, I'm in Arizona. Uh, they say that, you know, don't go anywhere near the place called Superstition Mountains because, you know, supposedly yes. any number of people have disappeared. And a friend of mine was telling me more about other areas where a lot of people are known to disappear. I know in relation to dragons, uh, there are different theories on the true origin of the myth of the dragon. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all if the true origin of the myth of the dragon or these reptile species that came here, because they certainly seem to match the bill. Most of them were about 10 to 13 feet tall and uh, did appear very reptilian. And some of them did have wings and could fly. I'm not so sure about the breathing fire part, but uh, they're pretty darn close in, in the general look of a dragon. Yeah, which I mean, and they there's stories of them going, like you said, going back through all most ancient mythologies, at least like different story. I mean, there, I know they're in the Norse mythology, they're in Asian mythologies, they're in British mythologies. Uh, they are everywhere. And I think one of the most interesting things in terms of factual connections to our history is, you know, this has been mentioned by any number of people. When you go back to the advent of Sumer, I mean, not only do you have specific stories that are telling you flat out that there were beings who came down and landed on Mount Hermon and populated the area of of the Levant, but at the same time that you have those kinds of stories, as has been pointed out, anyone can look up these images, there is the 
Ubaid culture, uh, which keeps showing these images of reptilian beings. One of the things I would uh, emphasize on that topic of the Ubaid culture is if you look at those reptilian figurines, you will see something that is of great importance to the flow of history and verifying that the reptilian interference is true. And what that is, is look at the shape of the eyes, because that's very important and very telling. So in those figurines, you will see eyes that if you go from the inside of the eye to the out, it slopes up. That is not a normal human trait. And you will find, as I track in the story, some of the reptilian hybrids retained that trait of upsloping eyes. I also make some uh, curious comments about how strange it was that Stan Lee, who was supposedly a 33rd degree Freemason in How to Draw Art the Marvel Way, recommends that everyone draw their heroes with their eyes sloping up and back. Very odd. Uh, again, normal human beings have their eyes in an even straight line across. Uh, and it yeah. was apparently only these hybrids that had the strangely sloping eyes. Interesting. I never even put that together. I never even heard that theory, but that makes sense. Cause I, I mean, I have, a, I have a huge comic book collection, mainly Marvel. So I have a lot of Stan Lee work and a lot of designs inspired by Stan Lee's work. And it's just, Oh yeah. It, so yeah, I, I, I've picked up on any number of clues that Stan Lee was clearly privy to. I mean, don't forget that in, in the Marvel universe, you have two very distinct alien cultures. One group is called the Kree, who just so happens to have blue skin. And then there's another group called the Skrull, which happens to be reptilian and happens to be able to shapeshift. Do we really think it's a total coincidence that he came up with those particular alien groups? I don't think that's a coincidence at all. No, it really isn't. I thought about that before, actually, with those alien groups, but I just never pinned it on Stanley. I just thought it was like a Marvel thing. But Stanley, that does make sense because he did create both those. And I mean, it also lends credence to the fact that they had the brood, which are an insectoid alien species, which there's been reports of that as well to some degree. Yeah, you know, at first, I think I was trying to give Stanley the benefit of the doubt. But then when I was reading uh, one of the Issues of the Avengers, I think it was written by Steve Englehart, I'm not sure, but it was uh, one where they were talking about an alternate universe, and there was the Serpent Crown of Lemuria, and yeah. a whole bunch of other things that were very explicit references. At that point, I was like, okay, this is no longer a coincidence. Um, he's clearly aware of what's going on. Another thing that uh, stands out to me a little bit with Stan Lee are these hand signals. Um if you know the secret societies, you know that they're really into these hand signals. And one of their yeah. favorite things is to have the two fingers in the middle down and the other two sticking up. Well, Spider-Man uses that when he shoots a web. We have yep. uh, we have Doctor Strange using that when he's casting magic. Uh, this is just happens over and over again. I, I think a real tip off for me, uh, too. I just caught this one. Uh, I've probably watched this cartoon a, a zillion times, but I, I was just kind of smiling at it. Uh, another one of the secret society uh, symbols that they use is the hidden hand. So you'll have these famous historical figures who will be standing there wearing a coat or a jacket and their hand is inserted inside the coat as to hide one hand. In one of the Spider-Man and his amazing friends episodes, there's a shot in the, I think it's the uh, Swarm episode, where the car is going through the physics building. And just like for the fraction of a second, you see a statue of somebody and it's an old man who has his hand buried in his coat. 
So, I mean, given the amount of time it takes to draw those backgrounds, I mean, someone put some thought into that. That was not done casually. Yeah. I mean, it could be like a little Easter egg or something along those lines. But, but let me ask you this. Do you believe that there once was dinosaurs on Earth? Wow. I know that there's a group out there who's uh, trying to push the idea of a flat Earth. I'm sorry. I, I don't believe that the Earth is flat. Uh, oh, me either. Me either. I, I, that I can't same that group theory. is also, I think, maybe the same ones who are on a campaign to try and convince us that the dinosaurs never existed. Um, I'm not quite willing to go that far at this point in time. Um, the evidence that I've seen does seem to suggest that the dinosaurs were indeed real. Um, I think maybe the most shocking thing I could say on that um, with that has come up in my research uh, that I think is pretty darn fascinating is when we look at the hidden history of our planet, one of the most significant events in the history of our solar system was, according to most researchers that I happen to agree with, the explosion of a planet that once existed between Mars and Jupiter. And it was the debris from that planet impacting our planet, which supposedly led to the extinction of the dinosaurs. Now, conventional timeline wants to put that 65, 67 million, million years ago or something like that. The astronomical evidence that has been collected uh, by Dr. Tom von Flandern in his book suggested that the actual date of the exploding planet was about 3.2 million. So Joseph Farrell in Cosmic War is trying to piece together when the exploding planet exploded and mentions Flandern's work indicating that it was 3.2 million years ago. So Flandern was then trying to reconcile his astronomical data with the geological data on Earth. And he, he struggled because when he got to that level in the geological timeline, he didn't see evidence to back up the planet exploding at 3.2 million. And instead, it seemed to be backing the 65, 67 million year ago time frame. But as Farrell argues, and as I would argue, I think it's quite possible that Flandern's astronomical data is actually the correct data and that the geologists are the ones who are way off. Because when I look at all other factors considered, I think actually, and I know that this you know puts me in an extreme minority, but I think that it's the geological people who are wrong and that it's quite possible this planet not only exploded at 3.2 million years, but that the dinosaurs themselves did go extinct at 3.2 million years ago. It pushes them much closer to us. And that would explain a lot more. Now, if people say, well, then, you know, how could they have gotten the data so wrong? I think it's pretty easy to understand how they got the data so wrong. So yeah. in geology, you have what's called a deposition rate. It's the rate at which sediment deposits on the earth for each geological layer. Well, that's based on the idea that the each layer of sediment it deposits nicely, neatly, no little havocs, no hiccups of any kind. But come on, folks, if we had a colossal planet blow up in our solar system, the, de the deposition rate during after that time period, it would have been unlike anything that had ever happened in the history of Earth. There would have been tons, relatively speaking, of dirt dropped onto Earth, totally distorting our geological timeline. So I do think it's quite possible that the dinosaurs didn't get knocked out until about 3.2 million years ago. And don't forget, too, that even with a number of these, you know, ancient civilizations, 
there are clear and explicit references to mastodons. Now, of course, mastodons are prehistoric mammals. They're not dinosaurs. But we do have evidence suggesting that mastodons were contemporary to human civilization. So if that's possible, maybe we should rethink some other things. And the fact that they actually just saw, um, well, not mastodons, but boy mammoths uh, right. up in up in the Ukraine, like in the last year or two. Yeah, and they've they've been frozen in ice, and um, you know it's a little perverse, but I guess some people decided to you know create a little meal, cook them up, and and have them as steak, and they said that they tasted pretty good. They were preserved pretty well in the ice, but yeah, I mean we have found woolly mammoths preserved in ice. So, uh, yeah, these definitely had a number of strange creatures that aren't present today existing. So if we can find evidence for the prehistoric mammals, it does seem quite plausible to me that these dinosaurs did exist as well. Which, do you believe that there still could be a chance of living dinosaurs in remote corners of the world still? I do think it's possible. Um, you know, one of the things that's kind of interesting on that subject, uh, one of the, when you look at history and you're trying to get information that you really want to know it seems to be hoarded by a lot of these secret societies so anything that any of the initiates of the secret society have spilled as or hinted at left a clue it's something that you should maybe think twice about before you dismiss it utterly i have strong reason to believe that jules verne was initiated into a secret society mm -hmm. and there's a lot of reasons i believe that but in any case one of his more famous books is called journey to the center of the earth and in that book he posits that some dinosaurs were able to get deep in the earth and survive across time. I think it's possible that there are isolated pockets, uh, whether it's deep in the earth or secluded geographical areas. It's funny too. We were just talking about Stan Lee, his idea of the savage, savage land, land. Yes. Uh, was based on the idea that there could be life in Antarctica and it was, uh, the reason why the climate was supposed to be able to be warm in a supposedly frozen region was because of the number of volcanoes. Well, uh, newsflash, there actually are a lot of volcanoes in Antarctica. Uh, one source says that there's uh, possibly 138 volcanoes down there. Um, so who knows what's underneath the soil? And of course, the idea is also that the surface of the earth in relation to the poles being frozen probably was not always like that. So we don't know exactly what things were like in, in ancient times or exactly when all of this shifted. But yeah, I do think it's possible. I, I don't know for certain that dinosaurs still exist to this day, but I think it's possible. Oh uh, yeah. That's, see, that's one of my favorite topics I talk about all the time on the show and other shows is like the, the examples I always have are the Macaulay and Bembe supposedly being in the Congo, which is basically a brontosaurus. And the idea, the idea that in Chile, there's ideas of like velociraptors or just raptors running around in the woods and that the people living down there worship them. And right. the last, the last one is always in the Southwest United States with the Thunderbirds, AKA pterodactyls, pterodactyls. Well, yeah, we do have a very realistic precedence. We have, you know, people were kind of startled when they realized the Komodo dragon looked the way that it actually did. I mean, people were yeah. surprised that it had that shape. Uh, and of course, one of the most famous examples in the history of uh, animal classification is the living coelacanth. It was considered that it was long gone and there's no way that it could possibly exist today, but they proved, yes, the, somehow the coelacanth has survived all this time. I mean, the coelacanth, the, the Greenland shark, they just discovered that 
is 400 years old, the one they found. Like, mm-hmm. these species can live a lot longer than we think they can. I mean, and let's not forget all the um, sea and lake and lock monsters that supposedly exist, and which I highly believe do exist. There's been enough evidence. But they're left over dinosaurs as well, in a way. So, I mean... Another interesting uh, animal uh, to think about is the Sarush. Uh, Joseph Farrell mentioned that one. So if you look at the famous Istar Gate uh, in the Middle East, you'll see that this animal was carved uh, on the Istar Gate. Uh, it's called the Sarush. It looks like, you know, almost like a griffin. It's a composite of multiple animals. And it's shown side by side with an arc. Uh, arc is a animal that's not very well known today, A-U-R. R-O-C-H, but it was very widespread and people acknowledged that the Ark was, you know, very real and used to be as real as an auk. Uh, But in any case, the Sarush is a very strange looking animal. And one of the comments that was made in relation to it was, if it was such a fictitious animal, why is it that every depiction of the Sarush, no matter where it is, looks the same? I mean, if people were making it up, how come it's so accurate, just like every other real animal that has been depicted in artwork? Exactly. I mean, same as, I mean, it goes back to Bigfoot, kind of like how Native cultures all over the world talk about big hairy men where they were like the Native Americans and they traded with them or went to war with them sometimes, depending on where you, which ones you ran into. But I mean, and all over the world, I mean, there's a version of Bigfoot in every country, basically. Or at least every yeah. big country. Yes, I, I make the case uh, in my book, although this is not directly related to Bigfoot, but indirectly related to the subject of giants. Uh, the Sumerians created a number of giant hybrids. Uh, the, there were the Nephilim, uh, who were basically pawns of the reptilians, but they in turn created pawns that were known for quite a bit of time in Asia. Um, you have to do the digging that I did, and I show you how to do that. Again, I have a lot of references in my book, but uh, basically I make the case that the Nephilim created another giant reptilian hybrid group called the Rephaim, R-E-P-H-A-I-M. And they existed in the Levant for an extremely long period of time until uh, another war lost to history, which I describe in my book called the Rephaim Horite War, which took place between 1400 BC and 1100 BC. After that time, the Rephaim were pretty much wiped out in Asia in the Levant. Uh, They were just pretty much nowhere to be found. But guess what? They persisted in the United States for an extraordinarily long period of time. It is really astonishing how long the Rephaim lasted inside the United States. Uh, Crazy. I mean, it goes all the way up to at least 1500 AD. They were still rather prominent inside the United States. My source for that is a, a author called Dewhurst, who talks about the lost giants of North America. They were not so popular up into the 1800s, but he is very serious about this. They were not scattered. They were not isolated. It is his claim that these people, sometimes known as the mound builders in North America, had at least 100,000 identified settlements, 100 thousand and which i mean i'm a big believer in this as well and i know about the lost giants of north america and it's uh the mounds especially and all the bones that they get they find and the government confiscates right away for some reason like smithsonian 
Smithsonian. Yeah, I mean, but yet you go to the Smithsonian, you can't really like see them all. They're all hidden in the back somewhere. Or well, that's their purpose. Some, they're a yeah. vacuum cleaner. You know, uh, they're they're going. <laughs> if you had to guess, you that last scene in Raiders, Raiders of the Lost Ark that everyone always makes a comment on. You know, I mean, that's the Smithsonian. Yeah, I mean, I've heard Area 51 too, but yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I'm a big believer that giants exist in North America and not just the Cardiff giant that they try to fake on. <laughs> but I mean, there's been discoveries of giants all, all bones and, but where are all the runes for these civilizations? That's the thing I wonder. The runes? Ruins? I'm, yeah. Okay, I so mean, yeah. It, it, it depends on which civilization that we're talking about. So with the mound builders, they were discovered all over the place. So uh, one of the things that Dewhurst did, he I guess apparently he used to work for the Miami Herald. And so at first he was looking for very straightforward accounts and couldn't find anything. Then he did a keyword search and then he found headlines all over the place. So based on all of his information, yeah, the news, I mean, even it's so strange, even presidents of the United States were casually talking about all the giant bones that were found. Again, this has just been edited out of the history books. So again, in each case, it depends on which group that you're talking about. In relation to the Pleiadians, we have the Great Pyramid. And, you know, again, I could talk for a while about how intensely technological and mathematical that structure really was. No human beings had the math skills to do anything along those lines at the, at the time. With uh, the Sumerians and, and a lot of the full-blood reptilians, they don't like the surface of the earth. So they're not going to leave remains on the surface of the earth. They went underground in Antarctica and in the Indian subcontinent. We have found hollowed out mountains in the Levant. There's a whole bunch of hollowed out mountains in Turkey. And even if humans occupied those after the reptiles left, I would argue that they were the original people who carved out those hollow mountains. As far as the Cyanians go, uh, I believe that they were initially amphibious. I think they had an evolutionary track that started out as cephalopods uh, in the sea, and then they evolved to amphibian humanoids and kept evolving after that, uh, depending on circumstances. But um, I think in the case of the Cyanians who were in Giza, I make a reference to Bushby's book, Secret in the Bible, and even Herodotus, uh, way back in ancient Greece, had gone underneath the Giza Plateau, and he saw that there were tons of rooms. I mean, he saw more than 1,500 rooms, and one of his guides said that there was a lot more that he is not allowed to see. There was a full-blown, very elaborate underground city underneath Giza that people have ventured to, and it's, again, not reported to the public. There is underground subways and things like that. So the ruins are there. They're just not talked about. Uh, another thing that Bushby mentioned are all the ancient artifacts that were discovered and also not shared with the public. Some of that stuff is very dark, uh, which proves my point that these people were involved in dark aspects of the paranormal, like devil worship and communing with demons and stuff like that. Uh, very specifically on that subject, there were a lot of black mirrors that were discovered. Uh, I don't want to necessarily get too deep into that topic, but it's very dark stuff. But they did have uh, a bunch of artifacts that were discovered in the pyramids and have been kept from people. There are stones, uh, gemstones that light up with fluorescent light. Um, some people consider that fringe. Some people consider that normal. So, I mean, it, it's up to you how you want to view it. it. It's just stuff that you're not necessarily familiar with. Um, the Arcs of the Covenant. Um, in the last podcast I was doing, someone said something similar to what you just said about, um, you know, ruins or artifacts and stuff like that. And I said to him, yeah, well, you know, 
take a closer look at the Terrafem, because that's something that a lot of people aren't necessarily familiar with. But R.A. Boulet in Flying Serpents and Dragons spoke a lot about the Terrafem. So the Terrafem were like idols, but what Boulet argues, and it's actually backed up strangely enough at Wikipedia of all places, is that the these idols were crystal radio sets. They were ancient telecommunication devices. So uh, in ancient writings, they're referenced quite thoroughly. But again, we have to keep in mind who's writing our history textbooks. They're finding this yeah. stuff. They're editing it out of the textbook. So the evidence is there. You just have to dig deep. And uh, you know, again, I try to provide enough references that you can dig up some of this stuff and see what I saw. Yeah, I mean, false history is well widespread throughout this world, and it's sad. But because the things we could know if we only knew we knew them, you know. <laughs> but definitely, well, the Atlantean civilization, like I said, they did a lot of positive stuff um, that I talk about in my book, and some of that I think we can bring back today. Um, you know, one of the most important ideas in regards to that is in relation to the limestone cycle. The limestone cycle is not nothing paranormal. And yet, if we fully appreciated it, we could have a completely different civilization because the limestone cycle, if you harmonize with it, that gives you ideal water, which I make the case the Atlanteans had, ideal sanitation. It gives you ideal shelter, ideal food. It gives you light via a form of limelight, which would have been cold, full spectrum phosphorescence. There are so many different things that we can bring back. And uh, again, there is a possibility that we can do that if we follow up these leads. Exactly. But I'm going to give you one last question and then I think we'll wrap it up because it is okay. already over an hour at this point, but definitely going to be on for part two at some point. But uh, um, you mentioned demons though, and devil, which if you, if you, I mean, a lot of people that's the, like for myself, even that's the reason that I stopped believing in, like the whole God devil archetype of that religions put on us. Because I mean, if, if aliens helped like settle and create the earth, why would there be a God or a devil? Like, unless they are just aliens of some kind. Okay. So what I, eventually you have to kind of confront this because it's part of history and it's part of existence. So what I came to, eventually was the idea of reality existing on multiple frequencies or octaves. You know, the example that's very commonly used is a radio station where you have different stations that are broadcasting at different frequencies. If you look up in the sky, you're not going to see any one of them. They're all there. They're broadcasting invisibly. In order for you to perceive the signals, you have to be attuned to that frequency. So where we are led is that there are octaves of reality on higher frequency octaves of reality are more positive beings. And on the highest frequency of all, in my worldview, is the supreme positive being, which would be the equivalent of God for most people. Similarly, there are lower frequencies of existence. And at the lowest frequency of existence is apparently a leader that we call the devil. And when a lot of these peoples were playing with the grid and communing with these demons, they were accessing lower frequencies. So we all have energy that flows up and down our spines, culminating in what you've heard, I'm sure many times, the third eye. And you can channel that energy up the spine positively or negatively. You can channel it and attune to a higher frequency or to a lower frequency. If you 
attuned to a lower frequency, I call that endarkenment. And I think that there were uh, dark mystery schools that were deliberately trying to do that. If you become truly dark enough, you can communicate with beings on lower frequencies that are the equivalent of demonic. And if you attune thoroughly enough to them, they can occupy your body and displace your soul. So you're kicked out and they're running your body as a vehicle. Um, and then on higher frequencies, there are more positive beings that are interested in construction and love and peace and ultimate building. So it's all up to you what you want to tune into. You can tune into being positive or tune into being negative. The choice is up to you. So when you say different frequencies, is that like kind of like the same idea as different dimensions that as you go up and down? Because I mean, I've I've heard that before from people who are into astral, astral projection and lucid dreaming. Right. I guess because of my hardcore science background and, and because I'm a writer, I get really picky with vocabulary. So yeah. like dimensions, you know, gets me dizzy because of the way. I mean, I at one point I remember joking, is there a custard pie dimension? Because everyone was sticking a dimension in there. Once you had time as a dimension and then you could come up with different coordinate access system and then you call this a dimension. And then there's a hypothetical 11 dimensions and all the rest. So what I just use is frequency. So I believe that there are realms on different frequencies, just like there are different signals on different radio stations at different frequencies. So yeah, I believe there's like a whole other universe with a whole other set of planets that's on a different frequency. There's ones that are on higher frequency, whole planets on higher frequencies, whole planets on lower frequencies. But I call yeah. them... I call them realms instead of dimensions. Well, like realms works too. I mean, that's more of a ancient verbiage for it. So uh, that works. And it's kind of like the, I mean, it, I kind of, I kind of think of it as like the micro and macro verse from like Marvel, like mm -hmm. where it's different. Like you just have to know how to get there in a way, but well, I do want to, Oh, the other thing uh, I, meant to, I meant to ask this earlier, but I forgot about it for a second. The grid. Now, do you think the grid lines up with what we know as ley lines? Okay, so I think there's a, a perfect geometric grid, which comes from the sun striking the planet. But if you go through the research, and there's a very important uh, hidden researcher, his name is Baron von Reichenbach. Uh, he's, I'm about to reread one of his books on uh, researches into the vital force. But one of the things that he did in his research, there's a chapter on him in Lost Science by Jerry Vassilados, one of the first chapters. He talks about different things that attract ether. Um, and among the things that attract ether are metals and ores. Uh, magnets strongly attract it. And crystals attract ores. And ether is a little bit of a wanderer. So what happens is that you have a pure geometric grid of precise angles and lines. but then depending on what's embedded in the earth's crust like metals and crystals and things like that the ether can wander from the pure geometric grid along certain lines but the reality of the grid i'll just mention this one because uh, it was another part of the reality of the grid that came up in the ancient research when Ari Boulay in Flying Serpents and Dragons was talking about the grid, one of his comments was the following one of the most famous oracles of all time was the oracle of Apollo at Delphi if you find mm -hmm. that location on a map and then you find the place where another oracle was located at a place called Dodona, and then you find thirdly Jerusalem, all three connect in a straight line. Hmm. Interesting. Which, I mean, I have been there, uh, well, at least computer generated Lee in uh, Assassin's Creed games. But other than that, I mean, 
Obviously, I've never been there, actually, because I, I believe they know where it is, though, in Greece, right? Know where what is? Uh, the first Oracle you mentioned, the one that's... Oracle of Delphi, on Delos. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I, I thought they knew where that was nowadays, but it's just... I haven't looked into it. I haven't looked into this stuff in a little while, but yeah. So, yeah, I mean, like, I think part of that grid was probably like, like the way the pyramids line up. I think that probably most likely is what we consider ley lines, which, you know, is used in every science fiction trope known to man nowadays. But, but yeah, I definitely will have to get you back on at some point, Tim. There is so much more we could talk about that has even been touched on. So, you are quite correct, and I will welcome the opportunity, and I thank you for this opportunity. Oh, it's been my pleasure. I love talking ancient civilizations and theories on why things exist. So it's just, to me, it's fun. It's just fun to go back and forth like that. Absolutely. But tell my audience where they could find your book and where they could find all the books that your press that your printing company does. So if you go to the duckduckgo.com search engine and you enter polytope press uh polytope p-o-l-y-t-o-p-e space obviously press my website will be the first one that comes up and there are books there such as natural healing self-empowerment hidden history of humanity and several more and i encourage people to visit and look at all the products that are there and shoot me a line and let me know what you think please yes and i may have to get a copy of your book because i'm dying to read it now like it's just it's right up my alley <laughs> and my two Fantastic. loves my two loves combined of ancient history and paranormal. So yeah, I'd love to get your feedback and maybe get a review. Oh, I, of course I'll give you a review. Um, but all my listeners, you know, you, you can find me on Facebook under paranormal than normal. Just search it. You'll find it. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram as at juggle bastard. And you can find me on TikTok as at juggle bastard podcast. And of course you can find me on YouTube with streaming at paranormal than normal just search the name it'll pop up as well and of course you can find our episodes on all the podcatchers out there but thank you tim for coming on it's been a great show and i definitely look forward to having you again at some point thank you so much jeremy appreciate it my pleasure and listeners i will see you in half a week <laughs>